Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy, and I am back with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with super producer Alex. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on board, and I got a question for you. Mm. When you... You don't sound excited about the question. I'm a little worried about the question. There's nothing here to be worried about. <laughs> and, and therefore, I am very... <laughs> you, that didn't seem question. to put you at ease very much. Um, so tell me, what is the most important thing that you have in your mind when you go into these interviews with people? The most important thing is I I want to make it comfortable for them so that they they will tell me everything on their mind and in, in a certain topic. And I want to ask some questions that are deeper. I don't want to skip over important details. Okay. And I, I, want, I want to pull out the information. So number one is to make them comfortable. So to get them in a place where they're ready to actually let loose. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Uh, so what's today's interview? Today, we're talking to Charles Heasley, and he is awesome. Now, he's a former uh, police officer, and I believe he was in Dallas. Uh-huh. And he has become a de-escalation expert. He's one of the top de-escalation experts in the country, um, talking all about mental health, what police are dealing with. Uh, where the line of force is and uh, he he is so smart and he and I met him at the National Speakers Association where I'm a member and so he's out there speaking and he's developing these really cool training programs for it uh, frontline policemen and uh, because you know what and I just think police have a really tough job to know when to use force when not to and to decode, is this a mental health situation? What's really going on here? And he is going to dial us in on all of it. And um, I just I just think he's great. Well, the whole idea of de-escalation is something I think that is sorely lacking mm-hmm. in law enforcement today because it seems to... It, it gets a lot of bad press. I would say it's the mark of a professional law mm-hmm. enforcement mm-hmm. officer is somebody who has that ability to meter how they're interacting with someone in a conflict in some way and having some sort of de-escalation skill versus those people that might be less than professional Mm -hmm. uh, that only escalate. And it seems like we hear about that so often in the news right now that it's refreshing to hear that there are people out there trying to teach people how to do the right stuff. Oh yeah. And he, and he's actually studying for uh, an advanced degree. I think it's his PhD. So he's going to be a doctor soon. Hmm, okay. And the thing that I really like about the idea of de-escalation is that this, so politically and culturally speaking, we had this whole thing after the George Floyd uh, mm-hmm. bit about, you know, defund the police or whatever, which yeah. people mistakenly uh, have altered that into. It means we want to basically no longer have police. That's not what we mean at all. That's not what anybody means. Right. Uh, what they mean is we want to uh, take some of the money being given to police forces and apply it to different resources for them to use. Mm-hmm. So it should that could be de-escalation. Yep. It could be mental health workers, social workers, whomever that can help them on their job uh, to better fit. Uh, I would say contour their 
experience uh, and, and how they're treating other people for a better outcome. Exactly. So and de-escalation uh, would be the middle ground between defunding and escalating. And I absolutely. love the idea that we've got somebody that can do that. And I think we should have more and more of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, he's going to fill us all in. So I think without further delay, I think we should just get to Charles. You mean just without listening to me anymore? Um, yes. There it is. Yeah, let's go listen to Charles. See what let's he is. go. <laughs> it's Tracy, and I have a super cool interview today on truth, lies, and cover-ups. I got Charles Heasley in the house. And um, Charles is a peer of mine at the National Speakers Association. And someone told me that I just had to meet him at our last event that we were all at in San Antonio. And um, so, Charles, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I was told that you are sort of a uh, de-escalation, not sort of, definitely a de-escalation expert. And you told me that too. So let, let's talk about this because you're you're retired or, or uh, I don't know if it's retired, but at least former law enforcement for some pretty big municipalities down in Texas. But why don't you tell us a little bit about you? All right. Well, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, the Municipalities I worked for uh, gave me an opportunity to really take de-escalation and what we refer to as crisis intervention mm -hmm. training to uh, put that in my tool belt and provide training to other officers. So really, uh, the reason I got started into it is because the agency I was with, there was a guy who had been the crisis intervention team coordinator for... 12 or so years and he was going to retire and the program, uh, you know, it was an, an important program. And I, I saw that I, that without him, it would still go on, but it, you know, it really needed somebody to champion it. So I started, I, I raised my hand and said, let me, let me figure this thing out. And he was kind of a mentor to me for, for three years. And through that, I learned how to teach the program. There was a, 40 hour program that the state mandated, or actually it wasn't mandated at that time. It was the mental health peace officer course and you, it was an optional course. And so I learned how to teach that. And then when the state did mandate it, I was already set up to teach it. So I taught it in-house to our agency and four other agencies. And then I taught it to our recruit officers. And then one day human resources comes to me and says, Hey, we want to know what you're teaching our officers and recruits in terms of de-escalation. And so I started uh, teaching our non-sworn city employees. And then from there, I uh, really just saw an opportunity to take that out into the community. Okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about de-escalation. And I'll tell you why I'm so interested in this. And that is because there's been incidents in my... I have someone who has mental health challenges in the family. Okay. And... um has caused some uh potent or just about really killed someone else in the family. So oh my. um yeah and so there's um like when when that kind of stuff happens when someone's freaking out in and, and freaking out is a technical term. Of course, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well they're they're having an episode, right? And I don't, I don't want to diminish that but it it boils down to freaking out. And um when when that is going on, what happens is it's it's registered as violence when 
it's seen from the outside, right? So here come the cops with their guns drawn, right? Yeah. But it's actually a mental health thing. And, yeah. And so wh- what's the, like, what do you teach people? What's the, what's your thought on it? I mean, you can, uh, we don't have to be politically correct here. We can talk all about your views and, and from what you've seen out there, but it's a, it's a problem. Like it, it's kind of like we're responding the wrong way almost yet. There's still violence involved, but it's not really full on like violence for the sake of violence. It's, I mean, what do you think? So that's, that's, that's a lot to unpack. Um, I would say, First off, I 100% agree that there is uh, a problem that police tend to be the ones called. And the reason I say that's a problem is because anytime a police officer responds to the scene, there is at minimum one gun at that scene, right? Mm-hmm. It belongs to that police officer. Sure. Uh, when I, in the unit, that I, it ended up being a formalized unit that I led uh, at, at my police department. And uh, one of the one of the things we try to advocate for is give us unmarked cars, give us softer uniforms so that when we're interacting with somebody who's in a mental health crisis, which is not illegal to be mentally ill, uh, the, some of the behaviors may be become right. illegal, but in and of itself, mental illness is not illegal. Mm-hmm. And but yet police respond and we have guns and handcuffs and police right. cars and, yeah. you know, in, in the state of Texas, the only people who are allowed to take somebody in a mental health crisis against their will for treatment is a police officer. Mm-hmm. And that looks like an arrest because we t- tend to put them in handcuffs. Yeah, We tend to put them in the back of the patrol car. It looks like an arrest. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the first step I would say is that we probably need to do a better job of educating families on how to communicate with 911 in terms of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Is the person being violent? Do they have a weapon? Uh, if they don't, then that changes our response a little bit. There's actually a checklist that uh, our department, I think it's a checklist from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, but it's specifically to help families understand what do you tell that dispatcher before the police get there so that they're better informed once they get there. Mm-hmm. The second part of that is what do the police actually do? And yeah, what do they do? Uh, well, they should be slowing it down. Uh-huh. If they see, you know, some people have this misconception that just because a police officer has training and de-escalation that they will never have to use force ever again. Okay. And that's, that's just not true uh, because Sometimes they're responding to situations where the person is already so agitated and either causing harm to another person or is about to cause harm to another person. And our job at that point is to intervene and prevent as much harm as we can. Mm -hmm. But if the situation is not immediately dangerous, if they're not actively causing harm, Mm And we recognize, this is what we taught, if we can recognize that it may be an emotional crisis, slow it down and use distance, keep distance between you and the person, if at all Mm -hmm. possible, Mm -hmm. and just start talking. Mm -hmm. And there was actually one of of the things I, one of the stories I share in, in a workshop that I do, I talk about this experience of 
two officers that that were on my shift at the time i was still in patrol mm -hmm. and one of the officers was actually one who worked with me he helped me with the crisis intervention training and another one was uh just an all-around great guy mm -hmm. and these two get they get dispatched to this call of an attempted suicide mm -hmm. and i'm not going to go into all the details but what you need to know about this is that the person had not actually harmed himself uh, and what there was no pills or anything. The, mm -hmm. the, the long sh or the short story is that he did not need immediate medical attention, mm -hmm. but he was in crisis mm -hmm. and he made it known to those officers that if they put hands on him to take him to the hospital, which is the only place he was going to go at that time, uh -huh. he would fight, he would resist. And this is a clear example of what we taught. They recognized that there was no need to do anything immediately. So they just slowed it down and they talked about it and they, they got to know his name and, and, and hear his story. And the man was hurting and he was demonstrating his hurt through an attempt at his life. And then he was demonstrating it through aggression towards these officers. And they realized that and they slowed it down. And it took some time it, and I was in the, I was there, I was, I was watching this whole thing unfold. And after about 25 minutes, which mm -hmm. is a long time, Tracy, it's a long, yeah, it's time. really long time. But after 25 minutes, this man who had told the officers he was going to fight them uh -huh. literally turned around and walked backwards with his hands behind his back mm -hmm. so that they could put him in handcuffs without incident. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about that. You roll up to a scene and officers are like, I, I have really a lot of respect for police officers. I really do. Because the, like you start to realize like everybody's doing the best they can do. Police get a bad rap lately. Okay. And there's a few bad eggs. Okay. There are. Course, now, yeah. here's the thing. You roll up to a scene. You don't really know what you're walking into. You don't <laughs> really know what just happened. And and here people, the, the public tries to, uh, you know, everyone's doing the best they can. And I don't think. Well, how should I say this? it's really hard to figure it all out and get it perfect every time? OK, it is. so so you walk into a scene then maybe, you know, it's a mental health thing. Maybe you don't. Right. What's the first thing out of your mouth? Well, I guess it depends on what's actually going on, because okay. if if like I said, if you get there and the situation, there's there's an actual violent thing happening. Uh -huh. The first thing you have to do is give give commands for that person to stop because it, I mean, actually it even in some cases you may have to go ahead and immediately use some sort of force to stop the situation if that's what's necessary. Now, OK, hang on. Wait a minute. How often does that work? Just telling someone to stop, like for real, because that's that's like, I mean, wouldn't they have stopped before? Because by the time you guys get there, it's been at least three minutes minimum, <laughs> right? Probably more. So does that work? You know, sometimes it does. Really? Yeah, sometimes okay. it does. Sometimes the mere presence of a police officer uh, can actually do one of two things. It can either escalate a situation sure. or it can it can de-escalate a situation because people know that oh this is somebody that's here that can cause me to stop what i'm uh -huh. doing uh they realize the severity of the of the situation now that the police are on scene mm -hmm. 
Um, so it really, a lot of it, I can't give just a, a, a an across the board answer because uh -huh. it, it does depend. Um, but you know, in, in a, in a general situation, ideally you would get there, identify yourself, uh, separate people if, if yeah. at all possible and just start having conversations to figure out what's going on. That's that, that's an ideal situation. And so like, like what's, so you separate people and then, and then you start asking questions about what went on or, cause you're going to get two different stories. Of course. Yeah, of course. And so there's, there's typically, uh, well, I say typically in, in the police departments I worked in, uh, most calls for service that would be of this nature mm. would have at least two officers responding. Okay. And one of those officers would be a primary and one of those officers would be a, a backup. And if you had multiple, they would be multiple backups. So the job of the primary officer is to collect the story from whoever he or she is talking to mm -hmm. while their backup is also collecting a story. And then it could be that the primary and the backup meet up and talk and share what they learned. Or in some cases, that primary might even go and talk to that other person. So it, it it really depends, but the job of the primary officer is to try and get a clear picture of of everyone's story because you know you're going to hear one story from another one person, another story from another person, and as you probably know, the truth lies somewhere it's in between. In the middle. Right? Yeah, right, mm -hmm. exactly. So you you have to give it your best, um, but, but a lot of people will lie intentionally. A lot of people will lie unintentionally because they really saw a situation in just a different light in a different perspective well now that is super interesting because um you know the human memory is really bad oh yeah and and it doesn't like it has to go through all these filters and and then it has to sit there for a while and then it, and then eventually it comes back out and there's a lot of and, and especially some some questioning techniques can because a lot of times the people, at least that I've dealt with, and probably the people that you, by the time the police show up, for one, they're in a trauma or a, some kind of situation where it's a significant emotional event. But also, they're not the sharpest knives in the drawer either, like to start with, right? And and so what's your thought on like false memories? Well, uh I haven't actually given that much thought. I, I I'm aware mm -hmm. that that things things can come to you later on that in the moment of questioning you don't you don't remember. I'll, and I'll give you I'll give you um just an example of, of a technique that nowadays is used in officer involved shootings. Mm -hmm. Um I don't know if every agency does this, but you have to give an initial statement before your release for the day, but most departments will give you several days before you actually give the whole statement, because sometimes you will in the moment, remember something wrong or uh, different, and it could be a crucial element. Mm -hmm. And if you have that time to let your mind recoup, and and process and make sense of what you just went through uh you're going to be much more likely to give an accurate statement mm -hmm. so you know knowing that on our end helps us inform how we approach the public huh. and yeah i think it's i think it's a pretty standard um 
I don't know, assumption is not the right word, but it's 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 a known thing that people's memories uh, of incidents can vary. And especially right afterwards, there's things that you have seen that you will miss when you when you mm-hmm. report. Yeah. 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 It'll come back later for yeah. sure. OK, so then what's your technique like when with talking to people who are having a spell and and here you come rolling up like what's your I mean, obviously your guiding principle is like, OK, get this guy to calm down. Right. Or or girl. Right. Right. But how, what's your favorite technique to to do that? I typically just yell at him to calm down. Mm hmm. That's a joke. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it doesn't work at all. Yeah. Always works, right? Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's the opposite of what you should do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, but you still, I mean, we see it all the time. Uh huh. You know, the the first thing that I try and do is just keep control of myself. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm out of control and I'm dealing with somebody who's escalated, there's no way that they're gonna come down to the level that I want them to come down to. Sure. So I try and do some different modeling behaviors. Mm-hmm. I'm going to try and come off as, as, as non-threatening as I can, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through things like uh, my shoulders being more calm and relaxed. Now, if the situation is dangerous, we have to deal with that first. But if it's just, we're talking, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to try and have a tone that is something that I want them to match. I'm going to model the tone. Mm-hmm. I'm going to model the speed of my speech. Yep. Um, I'm going to ask questions and then paraphrase what I've heard. Mm-hmm. If it's, if it's all possible, I will try and, uh, emotionally label, you know, I, something, for example, that, that seems really frustrating. Um, how can, how can we work through that together? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, the first thing I try and do is just make it clear that, Hey, you're having a bad day right now. I don't say that, but I'm, I'm making it clear that this is something I can handle mm-hmm. and, and I want to help you work through this. And I try and demonstrate that through my nonverbal and verbal mm-hmm. uh, language. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's the craziest scene you've rolled up on where you use your techniques successfully? I've been on so many. Um, well, let, let me, let me, um, start your memory and i know it'll start flowing here but you said you um you rolled up at a cowboy's watching party oh yeah well that that wasn't a situation to de-escalate at that point unfortunately oh. well let's let's just start with that one and then i'm sure more will pop up <laughs> well yeah you know my first year as a sergeant was was very um intense mm-hmm uh, that was actually kind of the the last call in, in a string of really bad calls my first year. Um, so I got I got promoted to sergeant quite young. I was 30 years old and and it was in November of 2016. Mm-hmm. And the the one of the first calls, just several weeks later that I, that I went to, that was intense was on Thanksgiving day. Mm-hmm. There, there was a trend. If it was a holiday, a Sunday, or if I was smoking a cigar, if any of those things happened, mm-hmm. something bad was going to happen in the city. Or and what about, what about a full moon? I hear that is, is a thing too. You know, I, I'm superstitious a little bit. I think that might be the case, but, okay, but 
but definitely if it was a holiday, a Sunday, or if I was smoking a cigar, something bad was going to happen in the city. Uh-huh. And and the the first one, this holiday, it was the Thanksgiving. And I remember getting dispatched to this gas leak right in front of a McDonald's. And I get there and I see I see the gas coming up. I can smell it. And I'm thinking, this city is about to blow up, mm-hmm. which ended up being a really interesting call. We had a, the fire department come. We actually had a chief of police, uh, not the chief, but one of the chiefs come out to that, which is a, a big deal. Um, fast forward, I get to assigned to a different shift, and one of my officers gets involved in a shooting, mm-hmm. which the news would make you think happens every day, and it, and it it's actually quite rare. Uh-huh. Three months almost to the day after that, <clears throat> I have this Spring Creek call. <clears throat> Can't share. I, I don't know where it is in in the litigation process, so I can't share a lot of stuff. But sure, yeah. The uh, I'm I'm driving around and and I hear dispatch call out a weapons call, and luckily there was an officer close by who who was uh, very well trained, um, and and responded. He was a hero. That those mm-hmm. would just say that he's a he's a hero, and um. Yeah, somebody had really just—it was a mass shooting. He had—he mm-hmm. had shot eight, shot and killed eight people oh. um, before police, before this officer gets there, and mm-hmm. and then he that the shooter was uh, neutralized. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was that was a wild scene. I'll say that. that. Now what? Now what was that connected to the McDonald's? Uh gas leak or how did that all play out no i just wanted to tell you about my first year oh <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a wild yeah they, they they uh they promote you and you know they they give you a little bit of training on how to how to lead these critical incidents but i'll tell you this the first year was pretty intense for me <laughs> uh-huh now didn't you say that one was like a cowboys watching party yeah, that Spring Creek one. Oh, the Spring Creek. Well, I tell you what, I would have started. I, I'm I'm a Cowboys fan. I just about start shooting people <laughs> because I'm so tired of them losing when they have the personnel to win. Oh, driving me crazy. Yeah, the Broncos didn't have a good year this year. Oh. Are you not a Broncos fan? You know, uh, I'm here in Denver, and um, I grew up in Dallas, and so oh, okay. the Broncos. You know, they're on TV and if they win, it's fine. But um, I really want the Cowboys to win. And so I've been I'm a very frustrated Cowboys fan. So, well, by definition, I think all Cowboys fans are. I think so. If we couldn't pull anything off last year, I don't know if we're ever going to. So anyway, um, so a lot of different calls. And then um, like, okay, so let's talk about a couple things. Let's because I've heard it put this way. The the police are the official responders and the first responders to any situation are the people who are there. And and it's kind of like a different way to look at look at things. So then let's say, uh, I mean, because there was just a shooting at a bank yesterday in, in Louisville, Kentucky. There's been 140. Is that right? Mass termed mass shootings this year in the States. Like, that's crazy. So. What should someone like, what's the best plan of action in this situation? If you're there before well, the cops get there, what, what do you do? Yeah. I, and I, I tend to revert to the FBI guidance on this because I, I really, uh, that's not a, that's not a situation anybody would want to find themselves in. No. And 
and the FBI has a really good resource on their website. I can't remember the the link, but you can find it if you Google, if you search for it. Uh-huh. Uh, but they haven't. They have a video that essentially walks you through the steps of what to do during an active shooter. And the the three-step process is run, hide, fight. So the, the first step is get out, uh-huh. get away if you can. You get mm-hmm. just run and run and run. And and what what you should do is when you're at a safe space, call police mm-hmm. as soon as you can and tell them everything that you remember. Um and I know that for a lot of people this would be difficult in a traumatic experience like that, but you know, if you can identify what they're wearing, uh, male or female, if there's more than one shooter, th- things like that. Any detail that you can give the police is going to be helpful. Mm-hmm. If you can't run, then hide and, mm-hmm. you know, hide in, a, in an area where you're going to be hopefully not uh, not accessible. If you can get behind locked doors, things mm-hmm. like that. And if you're in that situation, you need to be preparing for how to fight, what can be used as a weapon. Um, a lot of things in our day-to-day lives can be used as a weapon. If if you in, in, encounter that shooter and the last thing that you're going to be able to do is, is, is to fight. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a terrible situation. I, I hope that nobody, I mean, just the reality of it. Mm-hmm. People are going to, some people are going to come across that, but the, that guidance of run, hide, fight, I think is the best, uh, the way, the best way I've heard of how to respond to it. Mm-hmm. Now, then as a officer, what do you do when you pull up on the scene? I mean, and, and some, some officers that we have heard about it has made the news for, uh, following your advice here of running right mm. and, and i think you never know exactly how you're going to respond in a situation like that despite training but let's say you show up and you're ready for the proper response what do you do because there's got to be team coordination and you got to handle yourself as well so how does all that come together yeah well if 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 there's an active incident going on you you got to go you, mm-hmm. you got to you got to you got to find the shooter uh, and I think that's where, uh, you know, I mean, the, even Columbine back, you know, a long time ago. Back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. That really taught that really informed police response for for the years to come. Waiting for the SWAT team to get there, you're you're you're, you're wasting precious time. Yeah, you're and, burning and, daylight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and people could people could be dying. And, and so. Really, you just got to go. And and mm-hmm. this is actually something, one of the, another class that I, I teach um, was actually law enforcement specific. And, you know, when I, when I, when I sat in front of my oral board before I got hired, mm-hmm. you know, one of the, one of the questions that they ask is, you know, well, why do you want to be a police officer? And that's, it's a good question. Mm-hmm. But fast forward, you go through your police academy training and you go out and you have your field training and this this idea of that the most important thing is to go home at the end of your shift, this idea gets perpetuated. Mm -hmm. And so I challenge that assumption and I say, okay, the most important thing for you is to go home at the end of your shift. Is that what you told the oral board when you when you signed up to be a police officer? Oh, the, the answer to that is no. Uh huh. 
the the answer to that is I am here putting my life potentially in danger in the service of others. And I don't, I'm not trying to preach on this show, but mm-hmm. I'm going to go home either way. Tracy, I'm either going to go home to my wife mm-hmm. or I'm going to go home to God. Oh, okay. But that, that was my perspective. Uh-huh. And, and so, you know, if there's an active threat, I had a sworn duty. I'm going to go in, even if it's scary and it will be scary. Yeah. Now the coordination beyond that, you know, typically these incidents, they don't last that long. Uh, no, he, they're only a couple minutes usually. It, yeah. So the the shooter oftentimes will uh, take their own life mm-hmm. um, or will be neutralized by the police. In some cases, they'll be neutralized by a citizen. Mm-hmm. Um, so then beyond that, the the coordination is is uh, is really, quite frankly, a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, because you have a lot of agencies responding. Um, you have. uh you know, medical personnel, you have police personnel trying to get one of the problems actually that, that you may not even think about is that when these calls go out, you have so many responders and only so much uh, room to park. So oh. those, those ambulances that are uh-huh. needing to get victims to the hospital sometimes can't get out. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, I never would have thought about that. Yeah. So, so as a, one of the things we train for, we would actually do a mass, uh, a mass casualty event trainings on an, on a regular basis. Uh And one of the things we would, we would talk about and train for is how do you actually park? Uh, Where do you do it? Um, Do you need to put your car up in the grass? Just because the main thing you want is to have an access for any ambulance to get through to make sure those victims get to the hospital and as soon as possible. Well, you know, I live just a couple of blocks. We had the King super shooting right over here. I mean, right over here. And I was sitting in this very spot where I'm sitting watching the helicopters fly over and getting online and going, what on earth is going on? So I didn't go out until much later that day. And you are right. And they had blocked off the street and the parking was crazy. And I hadn't put it together until right now because there were hundreds of police cars there from all all different uh, cities around. Um, Okay, so so you get everyone parked uh, somehow and you're trying to leave access there. What else do y'all do? I mean, can you deescalate an active shooter or what do you no, do you, I think you're beyond that at that point. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if they surrender, then then that's you know, then then you deal with that. But no, nah, that's that's if anybody's actively taking the lives of other people, the the time to de-escalate has passed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. So, what else are you teaching in that class? And de-escalation. Generally, yeah, you don't have to tell us every little secret, right? But <clears throat> well, you know, de-escalate. I, I, I think de-escalation and active shooter training are, are two different things. Okay. Um, okay. And so in, in, in my de-escalation workshops, sometimes people will ask to have a portion on active shooter. Um, so I can, I can go through some things on that, but in de-escalation uh, specifically, you're really wanting so the person isn't you, you, you said, a phrase that I that I use a lot 
and it's an emotionally significant event is mm-hmm. the phrase you used. And that is another word that we use for that is crisis. So mm-hmm. okay. when, when somebody's in a crisis, they're a different part of their brain is in control. Right. Right. The, the more primitive. Yeah. Brain, they call it like the, the reptile brain or the un- unconscious subconscious, whatever yeah. it, they end up in a, it's almost like, well, it, it's not almost like it is. It's a, it's a state where uh, they're almost in like a hypnotic trance. Yes. And it's, and it's very, very similar. And, um, and you just do, you don't, there's no thinking and yeah. it's, it's all, uh, there's no rationalization. Well, it's in, in that rationalization piece is key because the, the part of the brain that uses rational thinking, that prefrontal cortex is mm-hmm. what that's not engaged at that moment. Exactly. The, the limbic system and mm-hmm. particularly the amygdala or the amygdala, there's two of them are in are that's what's engaged so what you're doing in de-escalation is trying to walk them through getting from that lizard that reptilian brain Mm -hmm. into the prefrontal cortex and that takes empathy yep on the part of the person de-escalating uh it takes time and it really takes compassion and a desire to help that person move from one place to the other Mm-hmm. So w- some of the things that, that we do is really try and help that person identify what emotion they're feeling uh, and 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 validate that it's okay to be feeling that emotion. You know, uh, we teach that emotions are okay. Mm-hmm. I can never tell you that your emotion is wrong or bad. Right, right. Now your behavior, whole that thing. Not, that's right. a whole other thing, but mm-hmm. it is never wrong to have the emotion that you're having. And it's important for the de-escalator to understand that. Like, okay, they're upset about something. I don't agree with the fact that they're upset about that, but it doesn't really matter what I think. My judgment of them having this reaction is going to do nothing to de-escalate them. Mm-hmm. So I, I I teach to help help the person that you're dealing with understand that you recognize that they're experiencing an emotion and it is okay. And it's nothing I can't handle. I'm here to help you walk through it. The second thing is to figure out what kind of options we may have. Uh, because at the end of the day, I'm trying to move them from one place to another, right? And in, in my model, I, I call that the redirect step. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we need to figure out what is it, what is possible for us to move from one step to another. So we try and have that discussion of okay i've already i've already identified or tried to identify that emotion i've let you know that it's okay now how can you and i team up and work together to figure out what potential direction we can go from here mm-hmm. try and make that person part of the process and one of and one of the ways to do that is to ask just start asking questions mm-hmm. um not not closed ended questions right but open ended um, and that could be as simple as tell me more about that. Or when that was said, what, what did you think about? Or what was, what, wh- how did that make you feel? Just get them to start talking. And, and the fact that they have to process a question automatically starts to move them from that more primitive brain mm-hmm. into the prefrontal cortex, because now they're having to start processing things. Mm-hmm. 
Now, are you ever doing any leading questions like to actually start to shift their behavior? Because, because, um, you know, I, I'm a hypnotist as, as part of my training. And so uh, do you ever do things like what would it be like if those kinds of questions or? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because <clears throat> when you start asking somebody who's in crisis a question, you can easily be given an answer that will take uh, you in a direction you weren't planning to go in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so sometimes asking a question like that could, uh, direct the conversation a little bit more. Uh, you know, I'm looking for a resolution to what the crisis you're going through is. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that kind of question, what would it be like if would, would help direct the kind of answer I'm looking for, yeah. but it also, it also, kind of helps them identify what potential options there are. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you have taken these skills because you're not a, a officer anymore. Right. You've, you've, and, and you've got a master's and you've, and you're working on your PhD, um, which I think is super cool. And so what are you doing in business? Cause you've gotten, you've taken this stuff into corporate, which I think is so valuable these days. So tell us about that and that whole program that you're developing and, and executing. Well, it's very, it's very exciting. I, you know, I, I left law enforcement actually almost a year ago. It was May okay. 8th of last year. And uh, uh, to be quite frank, I wasn't ready to leave. I, I didn't want to leave at that time. But through all this, all the training that I was doing for non-sworn non-police personnel mm -hmm. I, I saw you know there maybe there is a need for this in the corporate world and uh, one thing that i've learned is that the word de-escalation uh -huh. is not known by everyone people in the corporate world i might say de-escalation and they say well what does that mean uh -huh. and so i had to figure out well to me that was that was an everyday word right uh but so I, I, the way I, the way I described it is I, I help people become more confident, you know, it takes confidence to, uh -huh. to deescalate, become confident and, and effective communicators and in challenging interactions. And the way that works is that that challenging interaction could be uh, somebody in an emotional crisis, mm -hmm. somebody in a mental health crisis. Uh, it could be a difficult conversation with your direct report, mm -hmm. or it could be a difficult conversation with your supervisor. Mm -hmm. And so there's so many applications for it. And, and so I've, I've essentially in my, in my business, I've got two different kinds of programs. I've got one that's really directed at the frontline, the customer facing person mm -hmm. on how to deescalate. And then I've also got a program more for the leadership and leaders at all levels of how do you use those same principles in those communication situations with your employees mm -hmm. when, when it's not easy, when, when it's, when it's going to be a difficult conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how can people get a hold of you? Cause I think, I think what you're doing is something that's everybody needs it, but it's becoming more and more necessary these days with everything going on. So how can people get a hold of you? Well, uh, the, the best way probably is to email me and that's charles at jcleadershipconsulting.com mm -hmm. 
Um, you can also go to the website, uh, jcleadershipconsulting.com, or uh, my LinkedIn is a good way. And I th- think it's charles-heasley-jcl. Should have written that down before the start of the show. <laughs> they can find you. <laughs> LinkedIn has me. a good search. They'll ever yeah. people will find you. They'll find um, me. So one last tip for people, Charles. One last tip for people, I would say, is be comfortable being uncomfortable for another person. Oh wow. Oh, that's deep. All right. We're gonna we're gonna end on that. Charles, thank you so much for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.